from the Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, the Hill Country, uh, we are waiting for fall to fall. I don't, 105 again today. Yeah, it's been one of those, boy. It's a pretty warmy summer. But hey, it's Texas. We're, we know how to do it. Good morning. We're going to talk about your money, honey, uh, this morning. It's the first Wednesday of the month, September 6th. And our good friend Fred Dashevsky and the real world of money carrying on a tradition that we started 2008 with his farmer partner, former partner, Andrew Goss, who left us a few years back. And uh, now we visit with Fred once a month. And Fred buys and sells gold coins for a living. And um, he's good at that because he's been doing it. He and Andy started many, many years ago. If you'd like to join the show, please do. Questions about uh, whatever in the world of money, 888-663-6386, the email, patrick, oneradionetwork.com. We're going to come on after Fred is uh, come and gone and talk about a few things to answer some emails. I'm really behind on emails answering, so we're going to do that and get into some detoxing stuff that people are wondering about. I went through a big one. So here we go, off to the great state of, of um, South Carolina. <laughs> Is that right? I always, I, I keep, I keep, I can't believe I don't know whether it's South or not. It's, it's South Carolina, right? Hilton Head. It is South Carolina. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. Good morning, Patrick. Welcome did, to September. Yeah. Did you guys do a little hurricane thing, action thing? Uh, it turned out to be a kind of a nothing burger, which uh-huh. is good. Uh-huh. Uh, you never know how these things are going to be, but this one passed us without any trouble. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, in the world of money, the, the what I I saw an article today on Epoch Times. You know Epoch Times? Epoch Times. I've seen them. Kind of interesting. They say federal deficit to double to two trillion this year, even as Biden boasts deficit cutting. Now, wait a minute. It's not possible that the deficit could actually double in one year. I mean, can you explain to us how that could possibly happen? Yeah, how is it possible the government could spend more money than it did the year before? It's hard to understand. No, so all sarcasm aside, the government is bleeding money at an ever-increasing pace. Not only because it's trying to compensate for the still remaining lagging economic environment that we had through COVID, but also because of the payments for economic stimuluses that went out. And, of course, the Federal Reserve has continued to raise interest rates, which means the cost of all the money that the government is carrying as debt is growing. So the government is spending a lot more money trying to create all sorts of economic environments that will help stimulate the economy. Their inflation-fighting economic plan have all cost the U.S. population trillions upon trillions of dollars. These are all exacerbated efforts by a government to try to move an economy forward through government intervention. And the only way they can do that generally these days is stimulus. So spending money and spending money and interest rates going up, yeah. Uh, the deficit has doubled from a year ago, and the government is out of money again today. <laughs> so when you say stimulus, does that mean just spending in general, Fred, or does it mean money printing by the Fed, or both and or? Or, or both? both? 
Yeah, I mean, you, you have to combine all these things because yeah. in the end, if you're doing an accounting balance sheet, you have to add up all the income and all the expenses. And unfortunately, the government is spending more and more money every year faster and faster, but their income is not increasing at the same pace. They're not generating this revenue through increased tax revenue or by slowing down government spending on the other side of the ledger balance. They are instead spending and spending and spending and they've had a slowdown in the income level coming into the Treasury uh, because during economic slowing periods, the revenue that's generated from taxes also slows down. So they're fighting a, a, a problem on both sides. They're having an increase in the amount of spending and a decrease in the amount of income that they're bringing in. It's a pretty bad combination for a government. And of course, now the debt limit has been hit again. This short-term solution that we came up with a few months ago uh, I think we had talked about it in the spring uh -huh. uh, that was supposed to actually carry us through to next year. It really runs out uh, this week. I mean, we have till about September 30th for the fiscal year to roll over. And if the government doesn't come up with a, a continued resolution, a CR, to push us forward until Congress can get their act together, we're going to, again, potentially look at another government shutdown. Hmm. But we know that they always, don't they, Fred? They always kind of come. They do something, right? But they did shut down yeah, one, one or two years, didn't they? They did shut down one or two years, if I remember. They have they've yeah. done it, and it was disastrous. Uh, you know, politically, it becomes a real nightmare uh, because each party blames the other. And, you know, in an environment where they should be working together to kind of come up with a quick solution, because they do know in the end. I mean, you're absolutely right. They always fold. It's not like they're really going to allow this to occur. And if they do, it would be a short-term thing. They're going to raise the debt limit, which is, again – this is money that's already been spent. This is not new revenue that they're looking to allocate. They are looking to simply finance money they've already allocated, but they've run out of money to do that. So they have to allow Congress to raise the amount the government can go into debt in order to pay off their existing bills. So I agree that they will yield, mm -hmm. and this should become a, a problem that they resolve with either a continued resolution, which just buys them a little bit of time, or the Republicans and the Democrats have to actually sit down at a table and agree to a budget. And this seems to be the prevailing problem is they will not play together in the same sandbox. Yeah, yeah. But are we at a point where there's so much overspending that it would be impossible? Well, I don't like to use the word, Fred, but do you think they would ever get to the point where they can balance a budget? I mean, that's out of the realm of possibilities, isn't it? It's so big right now, the, the over. The overage? Well, if you're just looking at balancing, so there you're only going to pay attention to today and say, are we raising enough revenue to cover our current expenses? Right. In other words, are we not adding more to the existing amount of debt? I would suggest that the <clears throat> dealing with the existing amount of debt is beyond anybody's control at this point. I think you know that ship yeah. has sailed, yeah. but the idea of potentially balancing a budget still is within reach. It would mean curtailing some of the government expenditures and raising more revenue, which this is going to be interesting coming into a political year. But, you know, they would have to raise taxes. And, you know, what politician wants to be the guy that comes forward and said, OK, you know, we can balance the budget, but it means you're going to have to pay a lot more to, in that check that you write to IRS and all the corporations are going to have to pay higher tax rates. Uh, those are going to be necessary in order to kind of at least balance the current budget. Hmm. So. Theoretically, we may be able to get uh, something done to curtail adding more to the existing amount of debt, 
But even if we accomplish that, which is, you know, not an easy thing, and I don't think it's going to happen, and I don't think it's going to happen easily, it's possible, unlikely, but possible, even if we accomplish that, though, we're not really addressing the fundamental problem, which is this boatload of debt that we're sitting on, and interest payments that are now larger than what the entire national debt was back in the 1990s. What are, what are the interest Do we know for sure, but it's probably between one and... Uh, one point five trillion, right? Interest on the debt in that range. And interest. So, mm -hmm. do you remember the nineties? I mean, when we were talking about a nine hundred billion dollar national debt, yeah, and people were panicking about the idea that you know we were looking at nine hundred billion as a total national debt, and that we were going to cross into this trillion dollar mark for the first time, and. You know, the Congress and and Wall Street and the banking system and the Federal Reserve itself, they were all kind of freaked out about that idea. And here we are now in 2023. And not only have we obviously surpassed the $900 billion national debt, we're now $33.5 trillion <laughs> in debt. But the interest payments are now higher wow. than the entire national debt was in the 1990s. How is that possible? It's only, what, 30 years? I mean... Well, here lies the problem. Jeez. The rate at which this is happening has accelerated. Yeah. So what used to take 10, 20, 30 years to happen now happens in a period of two, three, mm -hmm. four years. Yeah. So it's accelerated so rapidly that doubling the interest or doubling the debt is happening almost annually. And at that level, if you were to extrapolate out within the next nine years, the U.S. Treasury Department will be carrying about 50 trillion dollars worth of bonded debt obligations and the interest payments will probably exceed three trillion dollars a year at that point wow i'm looking on the fed balance sheet today uh and um you know it seems to be going up we we the people now owe the federal reserve bank of new york seven and a half trillion they own seven and a half trillion worth of of that 33 right seven and a half trillion yep wow and they've done a good job of trying to reduce their yeah. balance sheet. You know, they made an effort to do it at the end and beginning of end of last year and the beginning of this year. But then at one point they had to reverse that because uh, it turned out that they were so short on capital that the Fed was forced to uh, purchase huge amounts of bonds to get the economy moving forward again and ended up increasing its balance sheet back to where it is currently. So they are trying to push back on that. Um, it's very difficult for the Fed to sustain a balance sheet that large because they become almost by default the buyer of last resort for all the treasuries that are being issued. And you don't want a, a country sustained only by its central bank. I mean, it's just an uncomfortable because they're situation creating the to money, right? try to maintain yeah. an economy when, the, when yeah. they're the only ones supporting it. Yeah, because they're creating the money to, to buy these treasuries on the computer rather than it coming out of... Uh, pension funds and investors and foreign countries, right? That's, that's, exactly. that's so, the inflation. You know, imagine every time the government runs out of money and the Federal Reserve creates more. Well, every time a central bank prints money, it devalues the existing currency that already is out there. So it's robbing money from the public in order to cover its shortfalls. And it is a solution because it creates the capital that they need, but that comes at a massive cost for the individual people. So you have an entity, the Federal Reserve Bank, which is an unelected group of officials making a decision about the public's funding and the public's value. And they are eroding the value of Americans' wealth 
every year at an ever increasing pace because the government's needs to raise capital continue to grow yeah. way faster than the government's able to raise capital. And by default, then it has to look to its buddy, the Federal Reserve, to say, hey, I need to borrow more money from you again and again and again. And please continue to support us. So we do face a kind of a interesting economic problem when the reliance is so heavy on the country's central bank to keep the economy going, it, first of all, is unsustainable, and second of all, is rather dangerous moving forward. Well, that's the dirty big secret, as you just so eloquently said. I mean, look what we're going through with the price of eggs and milk and chicken and beef and whatever, rent, everything. Uh, that's because there are more dollars, right, chasing the same amount of goods than they were two years ago or three years ago. A lot more dollars. I mean, not just a small oh, amount, God. but literally trillions more have been added into the economy. Hmm. And every economic slowdown has been uh, dealt with by a response to create more capital, as opposed to uh, a government intervention through other means. So, for example, back in the day when the debt was only $900 billion, only it's hard to believe. Billion, it's hard to believe. Phew. Right? Wow. Wow. So at that point, you know, there was a possibility that the government could have said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to make a significant, real deep cut into government spending. We're going to have to reduce our, our spending on government services. We're going to have to push back on, you know, all the obligations that we have. And we're going to have to raise taxes significantly. But at least we can address the problem. At this point, I think that has passed their ability um, in terms of trying to make judgments based upon can we raise taxes enough to fix the problem? No. Can the government slow down its spending? Well, not when it's increasing its deficit by 100% year over year. I don't see that likely either. And the need for the government to raise capital over the next five or 10 years is going to go up quite a lot. So unless they find some new method, you know, maybe start taxing, uh, you know, aliens on other planets, <laughs> I, there's just not enough money out there in Americans' pockets to sustain the need that the government is currently uh, using. Uh, Sylvia writes in, thanks for having Fred on. I, I've been reading from time to time that they are looking at uh, making some changes in Social Security. Do you think that every be a time when I will have my Social Security cut? I am 74 years old. Sylvia, 74. That Ah. That is a really hard problem for the government to face. So Ooh, wow. one of the biggest holes that it has in its deficit spending is in the hole that it has in Social Security and the other government trust funds. So there has been a standing promise by governments for decades to not touch Social Security. It's the third rail of politics. We're going to leave it alone because these older retired people, uh, you know, the mentality is that they deserve to be able to get the money that they paid into the system for all these decades up to this point and should not be at the end of the line cut off because the government ran out of money. It's not the, the it's not the public's fault that the no. government screwed up. No, so why up. should the public have to pay for it? Right. But in the real world, the government has a limited number of choices for how to curtail the bleeding of the amount of capital that it's spending. And one of those things it could revise would be how it pays out Social Security. And cutting it, again, I, I don't want to be the politician who has to come to the American public and say, hey, vote for me and I'm going to cut your Social Security yeah, payments boy. because we need to fix the government's bigger problem. No one happen. wants to hear that. They're not going to hear it. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's unlikely that we'll see that. Um, you know, you've raised <laughs> the issue uh, of means testing uh, in the past, and we've talked about that as a potential issue. 
I, I think that's one method. You know, you can only imagine that Congress has hammered this out year after year. They've all sat around and asked the same questions. You know, how do we do this? Is there a way that we can reduce our obligation in Social Security, but not screw over all the older people who contributed to it for all their life? Yeah. How do you balance those two things? In that regard, I'm reading a little bit more here and there on little blogs that they're thinking about doing something to the younger people, cutting this. So they're going to be paying in the same amount but not, you know, getting back as much and trying to hit the kids that don't know what's going on. And that could be something that they'll try to do, you know, the younger. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that'll help 20 years from yeah, now, 20 years you know, from, 30 right. years from now when those people hit retirement. But what happens in the meantime? How do we deal with the next five or 10 years? We still have this massive demand for capital and an aging American public. So the demand on that Social Security uh, balance sheet is going to grow as more people are going to be looking for this capital that they've invested. And if the government doesn't have it, the only opportunity that will be available will be to print the money to make good on the obligation, which, again, short term solution. Yes. Long term problem. Sure. Because, again, Every time a central bank creates more money and the economy has not grown substantially to absorb that, you are devaluing the existing currency. And people are really experiencing this now yeah. uh, because uh, as we've been talking about, the rate that this is happening has increased so much that the gap between what the government is trying to tell us inflation rates are and what people are actually experiencing in their real life, the anecdotal notes that we get from people every time someone goes to a supermarket are the same prices of everything continue to go up. They're spending more and more money getting less and less food, and it is a perpetual problem that is not dissipating and is likely to get far worse. So we are now, the Fed now, we the Fed is now raising interest rates, so they continue to believe, Fred Dushevsky, that this is going to somehow slow the rate of inflation of meat and milk and stuff going up. Is that paradigm even... Uh, Realistic? I mean, just just raising interest rates on, on... And this is just bank interest rates, right? Which they control. Credit cards and uh, mortgages and stuff. And mortgage, mortgages so and everything like that. So I guess that does slow that. things so, yeah, down a little bit. definitely an impact on yeah. an economic environment right. uh, when the central bank raises rates. And it does work as a mechanism. So you can effectively slow an economy down, which is one way of curtailing inflation. So in reality, the only way to really beat inflation back is to stop printing money. Yeah. But I think we could all agree that's just not going to happen because the government is spending more than it takes in. That problem, unless it gets fixed, continues to just pile on to the existing amount of debt and subsequently, of course, the amount of interest we're paying on what we're carrying. So in theory, if the government could stop creating additional money and allow the economy to continue to grow, we could absorb some of this capital and the inflation would dissipate. The other way to try to address it is to try to slow down the amount that you and I spend. And the best way for the Federal Reserve to do that, their mechanism, is to make the cost of borrowing that money higher. The thought process being, we'll spend a lot mm -hmm. more money if the money is cheap and available to buy, which is exactly what happened to the real estate market when rates went below 4% for a mortgage. The real estate market exploded because everybody was suddenly able to afford the home they couldn't before. Now that rates are over 7%, we are seeing a somewhat of a slowdown in the growth of real estate values. And, uh, you know, the market, the economy is slowing a little bit, but the labor market is still extremely strong. 
and we're still seeing inflation per, you know persist throughout the economy so whether or not raising interest rates alone is going to be sufficient is the problem that the fed is facing and also to try to balance this problem the other side of this is that they can't raise the rates too much because although you might think well why don't they just crank rates up to eight or nine percent and stop the whole economic environment from moving forward and we won't have an inflation problem well okay but then what did you create you create a recession now you're creating an environment where the economy isn't moving in other businesses can't get forward and and make more profit because no one's spending any money on anything everybody mm. has kind of you know turtled back into the shell so somehow the magic deal is to find a balance between raise the rates enough to fight back the inflation beast but don't go too far to tip the scales to send the country into a recession and that balance, that tightrope walk, is what the Fed has been trying to deal with uh, all year. So it continually waits for these economic numbers to come out, you know, the job numbers and the labor numbers and the uh, industrial supply manufacturing numbers. They keep reviewing all the data. And Chairman Powell keeps reviewing it and making his judgment based upon the news and saying, okay, well, based upon this, it looks like we're winning the inflation fight. We are gaining ground. We're making a little progress. But again, they're making progress by slowing the economy down a little bit. So there's a little, we, they call it disinflation. Uh, and again, not to get into crazy terminology, but it just means that the inflation rate is still increasing, but it's increasing a little slower. A little slower. That's about the best can hope for right now. Yeah, yeah. If you uh, care to be on the show, you can call 888 live here, 6th of September uh, twenty. 23. Fred Jaszewski, his uh, company is U.S. Coin Capital with an O. And he, we're going to talk a bit about uh, the best way to get involved with buying some gold and silver coins in a, in a few minutes here. So, um, the, 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 the idea that when your mortgage rates now, which what just a few months ago was at four percent, right? Now maybe there's seven or eight, and you you double that. Doesn't that make the monthly payments for many people at such a level that they can't even afford to get into these homes that are going up in price because wood is going up and labor's you know all that stuff. So doesn't that slow things down as well with housing? And yes. where, where's housing now, Fred? Is it is it um, Low, medium, rare as far as uh, housing prices going up, do you know? Well, the, there's been a little slowdown in the rate at which housing prices are increasing. And okay. in some cases, it's starting to stall a little bit. Some are actually expecting we might see uh, even a retraction to a little bit in some of the home prices that have mm -hmm. uh, been gained recently. So that is exactly what they're trying to do. So raising interest rates, making those mortgage payments more expensive, is having the impact the Fed wanted, which is to slow that part of the economy down. So yes, you're absolutely right. At 3.5% versus 7.1 or 7.2% on a mortgage, you know, you're talking $700 to $1,400 differences per month wow. on a typical mortgage. Wow. And in some cases, that is going to price people out. Sure. So they won't be able to make that home purchase. And that should slow down uh, the rate at which the housing market moves forward, which is one part of the economy. So, you know, you've got the labor market, you've got uh, the balance of the Fed also, part of their mandate is employment. 
So they're trying to make sure that people can get jobs. So if you slow the economy too much, how many businesses are going to hire additional people if the economy is slowing down? That means the job labor market is also going to have a problem. So the Fed has got to try to do this to where they can have an impact, but again, not go overboard. Uh, the real estate market is going to be probably a lot more stable in, in terms of growth and value over the next year or so. I don't think we're going to see these rapid increases that we have previously experienced because I do believe, like you said, a, a lot of people are going to get it priced out. They just can't buy that house anymore where they could have when the rates were 3%. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I got a quick little uh, personal story. I think our listeners will find interested, and you probably will too, and maybe something for them that they could look at. Because of our sales, you know, we've been having issues the last year or so just going down because people just don't have the money, you know, and that's how we support ourselves, right? And so I got behind in my mortgage payments, really starting to get behind. I mean, like a lot, like five payments. But I was calling them once a, a, a month and saying, listen, I'm working on this. We're rebooting the company. Gonna, you know, I don't and they were cool, you know. They were saying, okay, well. And you know, they came back at me, Fred, with a, that I, I didn't even ask for it because I didn't know better. They came to me, offered a, a um, loan modification, same deal, putting all the interest payments on the end, on the rear, lowered my mortgage payment by $700 a month, and said, at 4%, would you like this, Mr. Timponi? Yeah, that'd be fine. Sure. And I go, so they pushed, they pushed the debt down at the end of yeah, the line cares? instead of you yeah. paying it up front. But what do you care? I, I don't I mean, yeah, I don't care at all. I guess now, but the message is to people if you're having a hard time, talk to these people the because they don't I they don't want to foreclose on you. You know, they could have foreclosed on me three months ago, right? If they want you know sure. what I mean? They don't want to do that. They don't want to do well, that. Well remember, it wasn't that long ago in two thousand eight we had the massive housing crisis. Sure. So the defaults on mortgages were, were really climbing. I mean, defaults were going up and going up and going up. And just before the market crash in 2008, a few sharp people began to recognize that there was an increasing rate at which mortgage defaults were beginning to occur in America. It led them to believe that there was a problem with the housing market. And of course, during that period, uh, Wall Street had taken it upon itself to sell massive amounts of bundled mortgages mortgage-backed securities, collateralized debt obligations. So they had absolutely institutionalized the mortgage market. And it got to the point, of course, where so many defaults were beginning to happen that not only did it affect the banks, but it again began to affect the entire economic markets uh, because this began to filter through everything. All of the investors and that includes the fund managers mm -hmm. the big hedge funds all the big investment banks who had loaded up pension accounts all over the world on these mortgage-backed securities were suddenly finding that these things were all but worthless because the underlying value that they were predicated on was eroding so the last thing the banks want to revisit is the backwash of that default. wow yeah because then what does the bank do so now the bank ends up with the property you know, okay, maybe it covers the fact that, you know, you defaulted on your loan, but now they have to deal with it. What do they do with your property? It's a mess. So now they're going to put it up for sale it's a mess. when interest rates are seven plus percent and they have to find somebody who can afford to make that mortgage payment. And what if they can't? So what happens now? Now that price of their property is going to go down and you're going to find this whole spiral. They don't want to go through that again. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're going to work with you folks. So if you're behind, uh, 
you know, talk to them, call them and say, you know, I want to keep my house. What can we do? What, can you do something for me? And you'd be surprised. You know, I was just really pleased. I mean, it was like a angels. You well, know? sure. I mean, just in their best interest Everything. to be able to make an agreement to where at least there's money coming into them on a regular basis, sure. and they know they don't have to take this property back and try to resell it. It's like, oh, thank goodness that's <laughs> off the table. <laughs> Give and we've one. got Patrick back in the fold, and he's making payments, and you know, we'll just tack on all the interest and everything that he didn't pay on the back end of the loan. So, you know, instead of your loan expiring in 10 years, maybe it'll be 12 years. You'll pay an extra couple of years of interest payments or whatever to make good on it. But that is a better option for them oh, than yeah. to have a backwash of properties hitting the banks because the banks are struggling uh, as it is. You know, when interest were down at, you know, Fed funds rate and low rates at two, three percent, the problem was is most of the investors in the country became kind of hesitant to leave money parked in the bank because there just wasn't enough interest to make it viable. Yeah, yeah. So they began to move money into mutual funds or anything else that they could do that might produce a better yield. And that left the banks kind of struggling. And it forced some of the banks to creatively raise their rates to try to draw more capital in. And unfortunately, that blew up on them as rates continued to go up. And you know, it becomes just one of these problems that continues to roll over from one portion to another. But we are in a very tenuous environment right now because, again, with the amount of debt and deficits that the government is currently addressing, the financing of these problems is becoming so expensive that when they make a misstep and a mistake, it really ripples through the whole economy. Yeah. So we're teeter-tottering on potential problems left and right, and I believe the only solution is going to be in the long term. Uh, we're going to watch a money supply growth that uh, we've never seen. If you think it's gone up a lot in the past 10 years, really? if we're, if, if we're God forbid, still talking 10 years from now, Patrick, we're going to be laughing <laughs> at how $33.5 looked like a big number. Yeah, yeah. So then that's a good... That's a good um segue into buying gold and silver, right? If we if we believe that our dollar is going to lose more buying power moving forward, which we do because of what you just laid out, gold and silver is the only real money we got going, isn't it? Last time I checked. It has to, last it has time I checked, to be something now that's included in people's wealth. You yeah. cannot ignore mm. anymore the rate at which money is losing value. Back in the 90s, when we had $900 billion in total national debt, gold was $400 an ounce. I remember. I mean, the rate of inflation at that point was slow enough that a lot of people didn't experience it in real terms. They knew it was there and it was doing what it does. It was eroding the value of their capital, but you didn't see it on a day-to-day -day basis as much as you're seeing it now. And the reason you're seeing it now is because the rate at which we printed money the past several years, it, it's, just, it's just exploded. So they can't hide the inflation problem anymore. But and the more that people become aware of it, the more people start scratching their heads thinking, okay, well, wait a minute. If this is a persistent problem and we are going to experience a loss in value in our paper capital over the next few years and nothing can change that except perhaps the rate at which it happens, I need to counterbalance that. So people who are holding large amounts of cash, and there's literally trillions and trillions of dollars being held by the general public right now because no one knew who had capital what to do with it. You didn't want to park it in a CD that paid, you know, 4%. You pay part of that in taxes. You take out the inflation rate. What are you left with at the end of the year? Mm -hmm. So 
it becomes a big problem. And I believe that people, you know, absolutely need to make sure that they secure a portion of their wealth going forward the next five or 10 years in something that gives them a fighting chance to retain purchasing power. And gold and silver have continued to increase in value as the paper dollar's value has been eroded. And since the central banks continue to print money at an increasing pace, the rate at which gold and silver is increasing is also likely to go up over the next five or 10 years. It'll become quite profitable, but it'll definitely counterbalance the law. So for those listeners who have accumulated wealth, and unfortunately, a lot of it might be sitting in forms of paper, don't dismiss the real likelihood that the value of that paper is going to be so significantly eroded. If you don't counterbalance it, you may find in five or 10 years, it's as if somebody has come in and stolen 50% of your money. Hmm. That's not good. That's not good. Has gold and silver prices kept up with inflation over the years? They continue to beat inflation every year really? and will continue to do so. Um, Keeping in mind, of course, there is some volatility as the price of gold and silver climb because there is a, a lot of uh, different variables that are incorporated in the actual price day to day. But if you chart gold going back five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, it has consistently been increasing at a rate that meets or exceeds the current rate of inflation. So it does provide a good counterbalance for people. You know, keep in mind now that, you know, we have a rally in the dollar. And I find that exacerbating because I know, it is a technical <laughs> issue suggesting the dollar's relative strength increasing against foreign currencies. But what that doesn't translate to is you and I actually getting more for our dollar. So when they say the dollar is stronger, so, you know, it, it crossed over 104 today. It was almost up at 105, the highest the dollar has been because China is slowing down. So... China slows down, their currency goes down against the world's currency, makes the dollar look better, our currency is elevated. But did that benefit Americans? No. I'm not getting more goods and services for my dollar than I was last week because the Chinese yuan has gone down in value. So this false pretense of a quote-unquote stronger Strong dollar, dollar yeah. I, I just think it's a bunch of nonsense, <laughs> and people should not be uh, misled. But when the dollar goes up, even if it's temporary, there is a translation of the price of gold because gold is denominated in U.S. dollar terms. So if you were outside the U.S., when the dollar in the U.S. gets stronger, gold has become more expensive in these foreign currency terms, but cheaper in dollar terms. Anytime that happens, I think people should take advantage of it and just add to their position. <laughs> so... So gold is what now nineteen hundred something this morning. Nineteen hundred and thirty, give or take, something like that. Has gold been over two thousand before? It has. Yes. Did it stay there very long? No. Hmm. Uh, it's crossed that mark a few times. It's held up there for a month or two, and then pressure came to the markets and squeezed it back down a little bit. And then again, various things have happened from time to time. The dollar has rallied, gold has gone down, the dollar has dropped, gold has gone back up. Um, you know, you've got a lot of things involved. And in, again, the day to day price of gold is a complicated commodity, but it has crossed $2,000 and it has stayed there for a month or two or three. And again, it's, it's a ratchet effect. So this used to happen when we first crossed $1,000. It stayed there and then pulled back to 900. 
and it hovered in the $900 range for a while. Then finally, when it cracked over 1000 and went up 11 1200 it didn't revert below 1000 anymore, and that just became a thing of the past. And then we moved on. And then we hit levels in the fourteen to fifteen hundred dollar range and sixteen to eighteen hundred dollar range. So we keep on ratcheting up the number. And right now we're between roughly nineteen hundred and two thousand fifty, and we're in that trading range. So it's likely to go up and go down. And then a couple of years from now, the idea of gold below two thousand will again become a thing of the past, and we'll harken back to the days where we could have bought gold for under two grand an ounce because that'll be gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patrick has said in during some of his shows that back in 1930, oh, this guy pays attention. Back in 1933, they did not uh, call in the numismatic coins. Do you, Does Fred think they would ever be able to take away our coin collections? Whoa. Uh, I say no. Um, <clears throat> the bullion market recall that occurred in 1933 was very specific and did preclude numismatic coins for good reason. The idea was the Treasury Department had an obligation to create capital only when there was a sufficient quantity of gold to back it. So in those days, when you had an economic crisis like the Great Depression, you couldn't resolve it by simply printing your way out of it. And the problem was the Treasury simply didn't have anywhere near as much gold as it needed to create the amount of money necessary to kickstart the economy after the Depression. The only way it could solve the problem was to ask the public, to provide the gold by willingly give up their own gold reserves and supply the U.S. government with gold, and then the government could turn around and create the additional amount of paper money to move the economy forward, which is exactly what happened. Today, we don't have a gold-backed currency anymore. So the likelihood that the government would potentially come back and say, in order to solve the current economic crisis, Give us we need gold. more supplies of <laughs> yeah. gold because we have to have that to print money. That's no longer the case. Yeah. They yeah. don't need gold anymore <clears throat> to print money. So there's no rationale for any kind of gold recall. But if there were ever to be any kind of government intervention in the world of gold and silver, it would definitely be limited to the bullion market, which is under their umbrella. They have full control over those markets. That's why they're federally regulated. That's why the bullion markets require us providing information like social security numbers to the irs when people sell it to us we have to follow any money laundering rules for those people that participate in buying and selling gold bullion none of these things apply to numismatic coins which in my opinion make more sense anyway because not only are they made of the gold and silver itself but they're also fixed in their supplies since the production of gold coins is currency ended in 1933 we have not minted a single gold coin to add to the supply that investors hold since Roosevelt was president in 1933. It's almost 100 years ago. Not any gold or silver. Well, they did silver coins up until 64, right? The dimes and the quarters. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they try to pretend for a while that they were going to sustain something against the U.S. dollar uh, because we'd made agreements around the world that countries were forced to stockpile the U.S. currency And in doing so, they did it because that was backed by gold. It provided them security, especially when the foreign countries were experiencing economic problems of their own. Hmm. So the U.S. dollar looked great. So up to 71, we still supported metal against the dollar, even though the public couldn't ask for it anymore since 1933. We still had a gold-backed, silver-backed currency up to 71. 
and continue to make silver coins through 1964 that the public were able to accumulate. And I remember in 1965, the first year we had non-silver coins, you know, a lot of people started to speculate. And there was no difference in value. Then a quarter was a quarter, whether it was made of silver or not. But it didn't take more than a couple of years for the two to start separating. The silver quarter started to become worth a little bit more than yeah. that quarter that was weighed without the silver. And over the years, of course, that has grown to where now that silver quarter is worth 10 times what it was then. And the other silver quarter that was made of non-silver, you know, is worth maybe a nickel. Remember in the, I remember in the early 70s uh, when Nixon took the, the uh, dollar off the gold standard where foreign countries couldn't exchange their dollars for gold any longer, correct? That's what he did. And then remember when we had the Arab oil embargo and gas lines, I remember in St. Louis when I was at a radio station there, and they blamed it on the Arabs that they didn't want to sell us the oil. But the Arabs didn't want well, our stinking sure. dollars anymore. <laughs> right? I love well, that. Well, it was a pushback, all yeah. right? So it was one of the first efforts of the U.S. to weaponize the dollar. Yeah. So oh. we used it as a tool in, in yeah. terms of uh, utilizing it to push back against what we felt was uh, improper methods of the oil-producing countries controlling the price of oil, which at that point we were big importers of. We weren't producing enough. We had to import a lot of oil. So we were subject to uh, a need for the oil coming from these foreign countries. So, yeah, when we turned around and said, yeah, thanks for stockpiling all of those nice paper dollars <laughs> that were gold-backed, and guess what? No more. They're not anymore. Yeah. So the hey. pushback came from the oil-producing countries raising the price of oil and, of course, reducing the production to choke the, us. It was, again, the first efforts for weaponization of the dollar, and we've continued to utilize that tool. And every time we do it, historically, uh, you know, I've looked at it, it, it constantly backfires. I don't know why they continue to try to use the dollar as a weapon. It never works. Never works. Huh. It always ends up biting us in the ass because somehow <laughs> or another, even though it seems to solve a short-term problem, it creates a bigger problem. Yeah. So, for example, there's a lot of arguments that uh, are sending our military into uh, the Mideast during uh, the wars, the Gulf Wars, exacerbated the amount of terrorism because we created an environment where more people disliked America of course. because we put our troops where they didn't belong. We didn't pull them out when we should have. And, you know, they took that wrong. So these things backfired against us. And recently we've attempted to use the dollar as a weapon against things we don't like, but it's starting to backfire. Now there's this growing effort of you know, what they're calling de-dollarization, yeah. you know, which is part of what's uh, making the efforts for the BRICS nations, for example, to get their act together. And again, I don't think this is going to have any kind of immediate impact on the U.S. dollar's value. Many, many years down, it may start to look like an alternative. They have enough internal problems with the countries involved to get themselves together. They don't even agree with, amongst themselves what they really want to do. Some of them don't want to use uh, a BRICS currency to directly push back against the Western banking influence. Some of them want to use it specifically to for push that back. reason. Yeah. And yeah. there's a little battle between them amongst how they want to utilize this. But the idea of this existing is stemming from the fact that we are trying to utilize the dollar as a weapon. 
So we curtail Russia's access to SWIFT, for example. We cut off their banking systems. We take away money that they have stockpiled in U.S. corporations and U.S. banking systems, and we cut them out. So they push back. So, again, I think that this historically has been a horrible uh, decision to try to utilize the dollar as a weapon. And if we continue to do that, you know, we're, we're forcing de-dollarization. Sure. You, you, keep, you keep poking the bear. You keep poking the bear. <laughs> They're going to do it. I think six more countries joined up in this last meeting in BRICS, some big countries too, in Iran. You know, they're getting tired of getting all these, all these uh, things against them, and they're, they're joining up. And So, yeah, some people think that someday they're going to have their own currency, but you don't, you don't think it would be a while, Fred, before that would, that would affect the dollar, the dollar at all, a, a BRICS currency? Yeah, I think it's going to be quite some time. Uh, they are discussing the idea of backing it with gold. Again, they have not done this. It is something that they're going to have to do an awful lot of work to do. Can you imagine? And then, Ooh. you know, there's a process. So if, for example, this actually takes hold, then you have to convince other countries around the world that this is going to exist long enough to make it viable. Because nobody wants to speculate on something that might fall apart because internally the countries can't agree. And... No one's going to stockpile any currency if they don't see a future value in it. So it's going to take a while for it to gain some foothold. Sure. Yeah. And then from there, I, I still believe if and when it does really become a significant issue, I believe there will be a pushback from the powers that be within Dollar Inc. I just don't think they're going to sit idly and let this, you know, <laughs> just happen without their intervening somehow. And I don't know what that will look like. That could be anything. You know, we come up with another excuse to invade one of these countries to, quote, liberate them. Sure. Uh, sure. Or whether we find some other rationale for pushing back. But I, I just don't see that a lot of people were worried that, you know, come August 22nd, which came and went, when they announced the idea that they were going to try to build uh, some More. sort of de-dollarization economic environment with BRICS, that this was the end of the dollar as we know it. I, I don't buy that now any more than I did then. And again, this may take some time, but it is something that is worth keeping an eye on because it goes to the issue of why it exists in the first place. Fundamentally, if there were nothing wrong with the dollar and everybody were playing fairly, there would be no reason for anybody to look elsewhere. Just use it. But yeah. if we continue to try to use the dollar as a weapon, hmm. I, I think we're asking for trouble. Yeah. And I can remember the day, what, 25 years ago, that you even thought about using anything other than a dollar to sell oil. You know, they would liberate you. But now everybody and their brother is selling it for whatever they can get away with. And the United States doesn't seem to have the juice to, to stop them any, any longer or care. You know? that's, yeah. Well, it's part of the problem. Yeah, so, you care. know, at some point, you know, when you're stable, um, you're a strong man, yeah. you can push back against the weaker players. But if you're losing strength, and suddenly, you know, there are guys that are, you know, not that much weaker than you are. Uh, it becomes a little bit more of a problem. So, you know, when countries are going to make the argument, well, you know, what's so great about the U.S. dollar? We may be the best of the world's currencies, but let's take a quick look. You have a $33.5 trillion bonded debt of a country that can't raise enough capital to even pay the interest payments on its debt. Where are we? Are, are we really that strong, viable currency that everybody should, you know, pour their capital into and, and believe in going forward? That's becoming a question. Hmm. So hmm. the more of this nonsense that goes on with Congress and deficit spending 
and printing money for every economic solution, the harder it's going to be for the U.S. to take that position that we should be the default currency of the world. So this has been slowly eroding, right? Slowly eroding. Yes. And it, it seems like it's picking up pace now with Biden and the whole crazy stuff with going on and, you know, all this stuff. Hmm. And yet the dollar is rallying against yeah. the world's currencies, right? It's so bizarre. So again, I, I really take issue with the idea that there's strengthening in the U.S. dollar. I think it's a bunch of nonsense because, again, it's all relative. And, you know, y yeah, okay, we look better than the world's other currencies. That doesn't make us a strong currency. Hey. It just means by default everybody else is in the crapper and we're hovering around the, the, the bowl. We yeah. haven't fallen in yet. And if foreign foreign countries they've not really unloaded a lot like china or have they? They, they they've been pretty steady with their their holdings of treasuries about a trillion or whatever not a lot yeah they're not unloading there's really no rationale for them to do that uh, no. i think japan a few years ago had looked at potentially selling a good portion of their u.s bond holdings the conclusion they had reached is if they had sold 50 percent of what they held it would have had an impact on the rest of the bonds. Mm. It would have driven their value down so far. It would have reduced what their accounting looked like because the value of those remaining bonds that they held would have been reduced so much by their own selling of the first portion, it would have almost negated the sale. Mm. There would have been no economic benefit. So they just defaulted and said, nah, there's no point in doing that. So as long as we continue to pay interest payments and make good on those obligations, you know, people are going to continue to buy U.S. treasuries, but the, the, the rate at which we're selling treasuries is mind-boggling, you know, especially when we have to not only have foreign countries and investors support it, but when that's not enough, the Federal Reserve has to step in and buy accumulate, what, what did you say, $7.5 trillion worth of government got, obligations right? on its balance yeah. sheet just to help support, you know, the current environment. Also, I'm looking on the Fed's balance sheet now. We still have, or they, they st I keep saying we, I need to cut that out. They, they still have $2.5 trillion worth of mortgage-backed securities from, <laughs> from 2008, the big yeah. short. You know, they still yeah. got them sitting there, just in a vault somewhere. Think, think about that for a minute, <laughs> That's right? That's crazy. This is 2023. Right. They are still carrying debt from 2008's fiscal problem. Yes. They have not been able to completely address yet. The problem now is so much bigger than it was then, and yet they haven't even been able to address what they did in 2008. So how far down the line will we still be dealing with what we've done the past couple of years? Because what we did since COVID, 2020, 2021 to now, has been the most rapid increase in the amount of debt, deficit spending, and government increase in money supply ever experienced in the nation's history. I, I think 20 years from now, the Federal Reserve will still have on its balance sheet <laughs> crap that it's been buying the past couple of years because it still has not been able to successfully unwind what it had to do in order to solve the current problem. And this becomes a default issue. The Fed becomes buyer of last resort, supporter of the economy of last resort. How long can a central bank sustain that position of being the only thing that supports an economy it becomes very problematic so i've often wondered though if they just created the dollars like for those two and a half trillion fred which they did and gave to banks to buy these mortgage-backed securities the big short um why can't they just poof hit the delete button and 
they didn't pay anything for them. I'm kind of confused on how that works. Does it just ruin, well, they bought, it they just lowers their credibility? The banks. Yeah, they bought these okay, from the banks, so right? They bought it, right? So I buy it from you, you give it to me. Now oh. I own it. Right. So you've gotten paid. Right. So you're the bank, you've gotten paid, you're fine. But now I've got this piece of crap sitting on my balance sheet. Now what do I do with it? Can't they just well, I either have del- to carry it or sell it to somebody else who's willing to buy it? Why can't it? they just delete course, it if they just wants to touch it? Why can't they just delete it if they didn't have if they created the money to buy it? I, I'm confused about that. Why can't they just Well because it's it is an obligation that's out there. It, it is a debt instrument. It's like a bond. The Fed has a couple of choices when it comes to bonds. I mean, it can sell them, it can buy them, it can let them roll over and expire. But at one point or another, it has this obligation on its balance sheet. Again, I've bought this debt instrument from the bank. Right. I now own it. So it is now an asset, theoretically, sitting on my balance sheet. And I have to address it at some point. So, you know, the Fed can't simply dismiss its obligations anymore than it could just turn around and say, well, you know, we have seven and a half trillion dollars worth of crap and we just want to write it all off. They, they really can't do that because it... It's too much of a gimmicking of the game. It oh, I see. It just tells everybody. Fair anymore. It just tells everybody it's kabuki theater and it doesn't matter and whatever. Yeah. yeah. I see. And if they get to that level Boy, where you know, they're not even pretending anymore, <laughs> uh, who else is going to have confidence in buying government debt going forward? Uh, and remember, the government has a need, a real big need to continually have customers to buy its debt instruments. Mm. That means it has to sustain at least the image that there's rationale. That something's going on here. Survive, but right? the whole thing is just is a fairyland anyway. You know that. I mean, you studied this long enough to know it's just kabuki theater. So I guess they it's get away with... when you look at it. Yeah, because I know. the numbers are insane. I know, it's like... That, you know, and again, when there was a time where this was addressable... It was disconcerting, but now it's just, it's just out of control. I, I Again, I, I never thought this until about a year ago. I finally reached the point <laughs> where I had unfortunately concluded I don't see anything else left yeah. anymore yeah. than to simply print money to resolve the current environment. And this presumes over the next 5, 10, 15 years, nothing else happens that adds and to... And you know that's not going to happen, right? <laughs> and you know that's not... <laughs> you know, we, we can't make it through six months without something yeah. happening. So how are we going to possibly go another five, 10 or 15 years without any other issue that's going to create, you know, uh, additional revenue needs for the government? And boy, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't want to see it, but if these people don't want to just, you know, make this war with Russia um, more authentic, you know, and say, we're just going to do this thing. And, you know, they're doing it now just, you know, by, by, you know, by supporting NATO and sending billion, they're gonna, did you hear that this morning? Another billion dollars. Yes. This money, who knows where it's going? Oh man! Well, that black hole. Just and, you terrible. Know, just uh, again, terrible. spending all this kind of capital, uh, it becomes really a, a method for them to try to sustain some sort of semblance of reasonableness going forward. So, okay, we're going to choose to support NATO. This is our pushback against what Russia is doing in the Ukraine. So this is our way of, of battling this. But I think you're right. I mean, you know, again, you could easily see how if this problem gets out of control and we can't fight it economically, uh, how we would come up with an excuse militarily to, go to, in. to intervene. Yeah. Oh, they could just do some and, false flag in Poland or something. They could do it in a heartbeat. 
And you know they would. Of course, they I mean, they could. blew up the pipeline. I mean, you know, you know they would if they wanted to. It's crazy, right? They could do anything to create the environment. I mean, you know, look look at what happened when uh, it got to a point where we had to start dealing with issues coming out of the Middle East. You know, we found rationale we to did. go in there, and this whole thing with the Middle East wars, starting with the Gulf War. If you remember. Uh, even during George Bush's administration, this was supposed to be about $11 billion in cost. And we were supposed to retain a lot of that through oil we were going to find when we went in. Yeah. Well, we're about $10 trillion into oh. the war now. Yeah. And, you know, it's been 20 years. It's not over. It's become much worse than Vietnam ever was. And there were people that were, you know, talking about that at the time, that this looks like America's new Vietnam. And, you know, most of those powers that be dismissed that and said, no, no, this is not going to be a long-standing thing. We're going to be in, we're going to be out, yeah. and it's not going to cost us anything because we're going to gain all this capital back. through." Well, that never happened. <laughs> never happened. Never happened. Okay, before we go, let's talk a, a bit about uh, folks that um, they kind of know what numismatics are. These are gold and silver coins that have collector value. They come graded, third-party grading system, right? NGC is what you use. Um, and they're in plastic, and, and they have so much value on the books that you can actually buy a book. You can actually go online and say, what is a 1923 St. Gaudens 65 worth? And you can get a pretty close price, right, of what it's Absolutely, worth. Absolutely, yeah. Right. Yeah, the market is uh, very pretty, very open and apparent. Yeah, pretty uh, there's clear. There's plenty of information available for people to ascertain value. Right. And we have lots of coins that range from the simple old dimes and quarters that we've talked about that just sell for a little bit more than their melt content. Right. And by the way, that premium, as I mentioned in the last show, uh, has squished back down to levels it has not been since pre-COVID. So mm. the premiums over their melt value is good on the generic pre-65 silver coins are the lowest they've been in years, making it a very, very big opportunity for investors to accumulate. And then in the gold coins, you know, if you think about a $20 gold coin, it was $20 at face value with that one ounce of gold in it in 1933. So what that told you was that, you know, an ounce of gold was 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. And why does a $20 gold coin cost more than its face value now? Well, the first thing that happened, of course, is the value of the gold it was made of began to exceed its face value. This is part of the reason the production ended. You couldn't produce a one ounce gold coin for 20 bucks anymore. If it costs $35 in gold, you can't make a one ounce $20 gold coin with $35 worth of gold content. You would force the public to melt the coin <laughs> for the $35. If they could buy it for 20, they could make that 15 bucks all day long. And what would stop people from perpetually doing that? So the price of that $20 gold coin begins to increase. And it continues over the years to where now that gold content in the coin is worth $1,900 plus alone. And then, of course, you have survival rates, where most of these coins that were minted back in 33 and earlier don't exist anymore. The government had melted a massive quantity of them in the 1930s. And then, of course, mint condition examples carry a higher value than those that are heavily worn out and circulated, as they appropriately should. So that value continues to grow as well. So it provides people with not only an increasing value in the gold going up, but also the value they carry as a coin continually increasing because supplies are fixed. Hmm. And people ask this all the time, but it's been your experience over, over 30 years at this. There's always a market 
for these coins somewhere, right? I mean, even if you move to Costa Rica, you know, and just find a girl and cook, and, and we, where'd Fred go? <laughs> yeah, there's you know what i'm saying uh, there's still going to always be a market for these coins right always always well there has been uh, always tremendous demand for american gold and silver coins believe it or not going back to the 1790s wow. from the very first coins that were minted there were people that loved them and wanted to collect or save them and of course we've had some very interesting coins minted by the u.s treasury over the past couple hundred years and even the most generic and common ones uh, there is a huge market for people looking to accumulate this as a method of wealth protection. Mm. So the demand has existed for a very, very long period, literally hundreds yeah. of years. In fact, the demand for gold and silver coins has been viable and in the United States longer than there's actually been a stock market. Is that right? So before they ever built mm. the, the, the building on Wall Street, gold and silver coins had already been around for decades and that had already been collectors and investors interested in, you know, the sheer mm. curiosity or beauty of the actual artistic nature of the coins. Mm. And those that are extremely rare, as a good example, have continued to grow in value. So uh, when I first started in the industry, there had never been a coin that had broken the $1 million barrier. And they had argued at the time there probably never would be. But we have now more than 250 coins that have crossed this million dollar barrier really? and dozens that have now gone over 10 million. Really? So obviously there is interest in demand for these rarities or these never would have gone up in value to the levels they've achieved now. I remember when we went back at the auction for the 1933 double eagle $20 St. Gaudens, which was a one of one. So in the ultimate in rarity and it had sold at the time for $4.3 million. And of course that was a record and then resold again for eight and a half million a few years later, and then has recently, a couple of years ago, sold for over twelve and a half million dollars. Wow. So even the rarest of coins continue to increase in value, obviously showing there is tremendous interest and demand to own them, no matter what price they achieve. Yeah. Now there are esoteric coins; some of them have not gone up in value as as well as others. So a little bit of uh, guidance is helpful. And we are happy to provide that for people because there are a couple of sides of the market. Most people these days are working with the most commonly available coins. So they're dealing with the broadest part of the market, which definitely experiences the largest support and demand. So I feel very comfortable recommending this to people with the idea that in the future, there would, of course, be a market readily available for them to liquidate when they choose to do that. Uh -huh. Somebody says numismatics are difficult to sell at most places. I don't think that's true. I mean, you can go to a uh, coin. It isn't, it isn't true. Uh, I don't, in fact, most people don't experience it that at all. Yeah, Again, that's what we're from. defining now. If you're going into a pawn shop, well, you're going to the wrong place. Yeah, you don't go pawn so shop. So yeah. if, if that's what you're experiencing because you're walking into a guy who buys stuff at melt value and buys jewelry and doesn't care whether a coin is graded or not, he's trying to steal it for the belt content, yes. But if you go to numismatic dealers, you're not going to find that problem at all. Uh, and again, uh, there is an issue of recognizing how and when to do things properly. Uh, part of that guidance comes with what we recommend to people, how we suggest they both buy it, hold it, and sell it. And we'll be glad to help educate people on the best way to avoid any kind of problems. But everything comes with uh, 
a, a non-perfect market. I mean, there is no perfect market. The numismatic world is not perfect. There are definitely going to be some issues where somebody may bring in a, a valuable coin to somebody, and that particular dealer may not be a willing buyer. Sure. So yeah. is, is that a problem, selling numismatic coins? Um, you know, yes and no. But again, it's like real estate. Is it a problem selling real estate? Well, yes and no. Sometimes. I mean, it all depends <laughs> on a lot of variables. So everything comes with its issues. And it's, uh, you know, we need to be adults about this and recognize that it's not a perfect market. But in the end, I would bank my money on the value and growth of numismatic coins and my ability to sell them in the future way over the idea of holding that capital and paper money any day of the week. Oh, I, I agree. And these days in banks, I mean, if I had a bunch of money, I it wouldn't be sitting in a bank. I tell you what, I, you know what I'm saying? Oh. <laughs> It'd be a nice problem to have, but I wouldn't be sitting in a bank. I'd be doing something with it, you know, buying gold. Well, and people are worried. People are worried these days not only about what the interest payments the bank pays are after you take out the taxes you have to pay. Let's say you get a CD at 5%. So you're going to pay about 15% of that roughly in taxes. So you take a $100,000 CD, you get your 5% after 12 months, you've gained $5,000. $750,000, comes off the top of that. For taxes, that leaves you about 4200 or so. And then you have a, even if the government number is correct, you've got a 4.1% inflation rate. That's again about four grand. What are you left with? You know, you had 5000 in interest that you gained. You subtracted the taxes you paid. You subtract the inflation damage. And you're left with negligible gain after a year of locking up your money. So the banks are facing somewhat of a problem. And investors recognize this. But I would say to people that are holding cash right now, this is a horrible time to be sitting on large amounts of money in the form of paper because the rate at which it's being eroded is really accelerating. And people should not ignore this because if they do ignore it, they're going to wake up in five or 10 years and be devastated by how little the money they saved buys because they unfortunately stored it in the wrong form. Yeah. And when you depose your money into a bank, they own the money, right? It's not ours. They can do whatever they want with it. I know, I know people don't want to hear that. but Well, in theory, it's your money. But, you know, yeah. people have experienced also, this. I've had conversations also, with a few people yeah. in the last year that had really large amounts of money in a bank and try to withdraw it. Uh, it was really interesting. You <laughs> know, in some cases, there was a month or two months Is that in right? lag time between trying to get your own money out of your own account. Uh, you know, a guy walks into his bank, he's got $10 million, and he says, I want a million dollars in cash. And, you know, no they way. don't just hand it to him. Hmm. They don't make him wait a couple hours. They make him come back. They make him fill out forms. And it could take weeks or months, maybe, before he would ever actually have the money. It's just not like it used to be. And the banks are really um, facing this kind of problem of trying <laughs> to keep people happy enough to where they'll leave their money in the bank and not come for uh, redemptions too quickly because what we experienced this year was what happens when too many people decide they don't like their bank and they want their money. You know, the banks were unable to meet the demand and four or five of them actually defaulted yeah. because people decided they weren't mm -hmm. comfortable. So the old days of, you know, we used to think in terms of all the money that people deposited in their banks were sitting in those banks. And the banks would loan it out, but they would keep a supply. And the Fed forces the banks to keep a substantial reserve. 
and keep money on reserve with the Fed to make sure that the system sustains itself. But anybody who's got large amounts of money who's trying to withdraw it in cash is already experiencing uh, a bit of an issue. So, you know, people are going to say to me, selling a numismatic coin may be difficult. Well, uh, go ahead and try to get your money out of your bank. How difficult is that? And so what Fred's talking about on these currency silver, pre-1965 dimes, quarters, half silver dollars, right? That, um, these are pretty much um, silver coins that you can buy. And what's the limit on those? Are they a thousand, right? You have to have thousand dollars minimum. Is that right? Well, that's, that's yeah. The minimum order I can I can work with is about a thousand dollars. Generally, silver coins are sold in a bag quantity. A bag is a thousand face value, which would represent literally four thousand quarters. Okay. Or ten thousand dimes, which weigh the same, by the way. Four thousand quarters and ten thousand dimes weigh exactly the same. Have exactly the same amount of silver content as does 2,000 half dollars. So whichever way you do that, the math is the same either way. A full bag of silver coins, which weighs about 52 pounds, would cost an investor today about roughly $24,000. And that's generally how these silver bags are sold. Now we can do a half a bag or a quarter bag or Mm -hmm. take a value of money and simply divide in as many coins as possible. Uh, but most investors are trying to accumulate about a full bag for every family member as a safe haven wow. to give them the flexibility to literally sell one quarter at a time if they needed to or sell five bags at once if they need to because there's full liquidity in that part of the market every day. And it's a great way for people to acquire uh, a good wealth protection against weaker paper dollars to buy bags of silver. Now, for those that want to reduce the weight and the volume Gold coins become much more acceptable yeah. in that regard. You can buy a row box of 20 NGC graded mint condition $20 gold coins for about $50,000. And I mean, again, that's a perfect method for people to accumulate larger amounts of capital and have a much more portable and manageable form of gold and silver. Or we can mix that up, all depending upon the interest and uh, what the what the customer is looking for. So. You just take these puppies, put them in a safe or a very, very safe place, bury them or whatever, and just save them yep. for, for a rainy day. You just save them for a rainy And you know you're going to have, you're going to be okay. I mean, you can't guarantee anything. But five well, years no, from now, you you're going to be you happy know, you go got back it. To that, right. That 1990 period, $900 billion in total national debt, $400 gold, a mint state 65 graded $20 gold coin was $625. That coin today is about $2,650, and gold is $1,900 an ounce. So, yeah, I mean, you're going to continue to see an escalation in value. But again, I recommend that people look at this seriously, not so much as a casual idea that, yeah, that wouldn't be a bad idea to have a little gold and silver. I think it's way beyond that now. It is an absolutely essential part of what has to be a portion of what people do because you can't count on paper money to sustain value anymore because the rate at which it's being inflated is it's just it's just so rapid right now we don't need 30 years to experience a drop in purchasing power people see it every day now and it's going to become much worse over the next five or ten years and most people are not prepared and 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 i think it's a good argument that this is just not generic to the united states almost all countries are in the same position right they're all just they're all just much worse so gold and silver overall big picture will become more valuable because there's money printing going on everywhere. 
I don't care where you are. Yeah. Russia, China. The Eurozone has 10% inflation right now. It, it doesn't. So yeah. that's their government numbers, 10%. So right. God only knows what it really, <laughs> what it really is, is. right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And here we're, we're claiming 4.1% no and 3% inflation is Come what on. Biden says. Yeah, that's Again, I, I don't buy the government statistics. But yeah, you can clearly see this is not just happening here in America. It's happening worldwide. <laughs> All of the currencies are losing value. It's just that some are losing value against others more quickly, and therefore some appear stronger from time to time. But again, that's like you call it kabuki theater. Don't don't get don't get uh, don't fall into that trap of believing right. the dollar has actually gotten stronger because no that's just nonsense. There's no so uh, here's a little uh, stuff on Fred. Here's his phone number eight hundred eight seven eight two six four six. It's U.S. Coin Capital. C-A-P-I-T-O-L. You can go to uscoincapital.com and look at, uh, you, you have specials and fun things and just some interesting things about your, your company there, right, Fred, on U.S. Coin Capital? I do. We yeah. have a couple of pre-made packages that people have been mixing, matching, and, you know, three of these, four of these, like a Chinese menu, that works, or That's one good. of whatever. Um, and we change that from time to time. We do have some specials that go out via email to our existing client base, uh, those types of things. And then people can just call us for more daily specials or anything that might be current that we haven't had time to post on the website. We've also been posting videos like this, clips of videos on our YouTube channel, which you can find us under U.S. Coin Capital on YouTube. We've also re-added our Facebook page, which Facebook, they didn't um, block us our Facebook page disappeared, it disappeared about a year and a half ago, really? and they couldn't figure out why. It was a technical problem. Oh, it had sure. nothing to do with content, oh, and we couldn't recover it. We spent about a year trying to get Meta to fix it, and they're so convoluted, we actually had to relaunch the whole thing from square one. So our apologies to the thousand or more followers we already had, and we have to restart that whole process again. So we encourage people to come back and revisit U.S. Coin Capital's Facebook page, like us again, and then you'll also see all the new posts that we put up on the page from uh, almost every week. We put something up there just to keep people in the loop. Yeah, and I put some things about you from time to time on my page, as you know. And and yeah. and also, you should have contacted me because I'm generally in Facebook jail, so I was nearby. You know, <laughs> I was nearby. You could have called me, Fred. I would have helped you. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, I was in trouble there. All right, Freddie. Thanks so much. Eight hundred. Eight seven eight two six four six is Fred's number, and you have some folks there that'll talk to people. You have some time, right? They'll talk Absolutely. to people. You're not going to get. Feel uh, free to give us a call. You know, again, I, we're we're happy to educate people about the basics. You know, what is a twenty dollar gold coin? What is a bag of silver? How does it function? How do we use this stuff? Uh -huh. You know, how does it make sense, and why does it make sense for people to accumulate? gold and silver and how it works within an overall portfolio and we'll be glad to work with people to get them up to speed educated you know before they spend a dime and, and if they're comfortable enough to work with us we'll be glad to, to provide the product as well well i was kind of hoping i would get a call center out of india when i called you but no that's that's not the way it works <laughs> that's great. okay fred thanks a lot take care of yourself stay out of trouble you got it patrick so you, I have an off-air question for you, so when you have a second, I, I want to chat with you. Yes, we can do that right now. Just let me close out, and I'll be right with you. Off okay. the air. We're going to do an off-the-record question. Ooh, that'll be fun. This is OneRadioNetwork.com. So I'm going to take a little break, and we're going to do an off-the-record question for Patrick. And I'm going to go downstairs and grab a piece of cheese or something, 
and we're going to come back and we're going to get to some emails. It's been, uh, my emails are stacking up and, and we take Thursdays off. So we're going to, we'll spend a little few minutes with you doing some emails here, baby. So stay right there. I love you all very much. Thanks for your support. Remember, my email is always available to you. Patrick, OneRadioNetwork.com. If you're watching this video on BitChute, which most people do on the videos, you can see on the links below, on the links below and we'll put also a link to Fred's uh, website in the link below in the BitChute, so you can just click on and go right to U.S. Coin Capital. But all the information on our store, our website, and how to donate to us um, is right there underneath the, the BitChute video. Okay, so see you soon. I'll see you in about, oh, 10 minutes or so right here. Stay right there. From the Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com.